All right, let's get our Bibles. Turn to 1 Peter chapter 5. We have been in the book of Peter all summer. And I'm just going to tell you this. I don't care what happens this morning. I'm landing this plane. Next week, we celebrate 17 years of Westridge Church. So we're going to be having our anniversary Sunday. We kick off a brand new series the following Sunday on... uh, the beginning to the end, we're going to be talking about creationism all the way through in time. So some of you who are excited about prophecy, woo, you know, uh, we're going to be doing that. So that's going to be a lot of fun. Um, I remember several years ago, actually, I, I was, as I've been thinking more about it, it was right after um, 9-11, we decided uh, rather than take our students to the beach that we would take our summer camp up to Manhattan uh, we were partnering with a church in Queens, a Filipino church in Queens. And so we took our students for their camp up to Manhattan. Now imagine taking like around 100 plus students up to the little island of Manhattan with over 7 million, however many people there. I was a nervous wreck just trying to make sure everybody got from where they were supposed to be on this, you know, subway, you know, to here to there. And so um, on one particular day, um, I was standing on Fifth Avenue, like right near not too, not exactly near, but right down the road from the entrance to Central Park. And I am a people watcher. Anybody else a people watcher? I mean, I, love, I can sit in the airport and just watch people all day long laugh. I mean, this is a beautiful thing. Um, but I love to watch people and I, and I love to kind of like, kind of size up, you know, the room, you know, what's going on. I'm sizing you up right now. Um, you know, the mood of what's going on. And, and, and as I was standing, matter of fact, I was standing against a wall and I think it was against the Saks Fifth Avenue um, store on Fifth Avenue. And I'm looking around at all the advertising and, you know, different things that are going on. And I'm thinking, okay, this is like the pinnacle of success. You know, people spend their lives, if I could just live, you know, in a condo overlooking Central Park or live right off of Fifth Avenue. I mean, the nicest stores in the world are here. I mean, this is like, you know, Trump Plaza Tower or whatever. I mean, it's just, this is it, you know. And so I'm watching, of course, you can tell who the tourists are. I, I, I used to cry like that, just like that. Um, but I um, used to, like, so I'm watching the tourists walk by, and they got cameras around their necks, you know, and you can tell who they are. But you can also tell who, who the people are that actually live there because they're just in a hurry. I mean, they are in a hurry to get from one place to the next. And they, you know, I'm sitting there thinking, man, this is, this is it. This is where, this is where you, you arrive when you, you know, when you live here. And I'm noticing these people don't look very happy. Like, they're in a hurry. They look like they're, like, linebackers, like, almost throwing people out of the way. And I'm, I know some of you are going, well, they're New Yorkers. No, I'm serious. They, 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 they're from all over the world. They're, and I'm sitting there thinking, you know, this is, like, where you want to be. In, in this world, in this culture, this is where you want to be, you know, right here. But it's, I just thought, all these people have gotten here, and they don't look happy about being here. They, they, matter of fact, they look, some of them look kind of angry. Like they're just in a hurry and just there's no interaction, there's no community. It was like, whoa, whoa, you know. And I just thought to myself, this is, I think, what a lot of life is like for a lot of people this horizontal pursuit um, you know, to try to find success. And, you know, if I get to this place where I've got wealth and fame, then I'm really, really going to be happy. And I think a lot of people in life spend a lot of time thinking that if I just get to this place, then I'll be really fulfilled. I'll really feel contentment. I'll have peace in my life. I'll really feel like I've arrived. And I think the horizontal pursuit that a lot of people in our world 
really comes down to about four things. One is just simply wealth. And wealth just says, you know what, if you, just, if you, if you can really make a bunch of money, then, then you'll be successful. And this is really how a lot of people, not just in America, but like you go to Moscow, Paris, wherever, that money equals success in their eyes. Material money, material possessions. And honestly, nothing wrong with making money. Nothing wrong with driving a nice car, having material possessions, living in a beautiful house. Nothing wrong with investing money and spending money or giving money as long as it's done with pure heart and right motives. However, I want you to know that having more money will never make you ultimately more happy. It's never going to bring true happiness. It will never really bring lasting contentment and fulfillment or satisfaction. Some people think, well, if I could just be famous, fame. You know, I mean, fame says in order to be successful, then you need to be well-known in the public arena. You need to be a, a social somebody. You need to have a ton of followers on social media. If, um, if you're more popular, then somehow you're more significant in the eyes of the world. The other one's simply power. Power says that, that to be successful, you need to have authority, or you need to be in charge, or you need to be in control. And, and I don't know about you, but I've met lots and lots of powerful people who aren't very happy. And then the other one that I find is pleasure. Um, and pleasure just says to be successful, you just need to simply do what's good. If it feels good, do it. And so you've got this horizontal pursuit going on out there in the world, and, and even for some of you maybe, and it's just wealth and fame or power or pleasure. And, and it's weird because those messages bombard us all the time. In the world of marketing, I mean, it's just like it, that, that's, that's the message. Success equals wealth or fame or power or pleasure. That's the ingredients to true happiness. The problem is, it's not true, is it? I mean, it's really not true. And it's never been true. If you look back to the days of the Old Testament, King Solomon, who had actually all four of those things and more, I mean, when it came down to the end of it, he wrote about it. He said, it's all nothing more than a chasing after the wind. And when Peter wrote this letter to these recipients, I mean, it wasn't true then. And it's not true today. If it were true, if it were, this were true, then we wouldn't have all of the crazy stories coming out of Hollywood. And all of the crazy stories even coming out of the sports world or the entertainment world or wherever it is. Just all of these, you know, epic failures and disasters and things like that. Because here are these people who have reached all of these pinnacles of success and yet they still have not found contentment and happiness and satisfaction. So what's missing? What's really missing? What's absent in all of this? Well, I believe what's missing is a vertical dimension. See, here's the truth. Nothing on this horizontal list that I just mentioned really guarantees satisfaction or really brings true relief to the depths of our hearts. And what do most people really want in life? Well, I think most people really want in life is just to be content. I mean, not to like do nothing, but like to have a sense of contentment or to really have peace in their life or to feel a sense of satisfaction. I mean, I personally think that what most people really want when it's all said and done is they want their life to count. They want to know that when they get down to the end of their life, that they've spent that little dash that they have between the day they were born and the day they die, that, that it really meant something, that they made a difference. Well, how do we make that a reality in our lives? Well, as Peter closes off this letter, we need to remember that the recipients of this letter are Christians who have been displaced from their homeland in Jerusalem. They are believers who are living in a godless culture. The Bible calls them alien strangers in a foreign land. These are folks who are going through, through tough times. They're going through a trial. They're going through suffering. They're actually, some of them are going through persecution. 
And so as Peter is wrapping up this letter, he gives them some very practical, down-to-earth, I think very relevant advice that says, listen, if you really want to find contentment and fulfillment and satisfaction and real peace in the midst of all that you're going through, then don't chase after the culture. Don't put your ladder against the wrong wall. Because if you want to not just survive, but actually thrive in, in the midst of this crazy culture, then what we're going to have to do here is we're going to have to redefine what success actually looks like. And he makes a point that true success is not about what you accumulate, about just like having more and more stuff. It's not about you know, you promoting you so that you can be somebody. And it's not about becoming more powerful so that you can have a bigger empire. Success in God's eyes is when you take what he has given you here on this earth and you use it, you choose to to use it to invest it into the lives of others. You actually help others to find the life that you have found in Jesus Christ. You influence others to get off of this empty horizontal pursuit of happiness that they might be stuck on. And it's taking maybe even the wealth and fame and power and maybe even the degree of pleasure that you've been given, and you choose to partner with God so that you can expand his kingdom and not your own. See, that's, that's success. That's redefining success. And when you redefine success, what you have to do according to what we're going to learn this morning, is you have to embrace some attitudes that will help you get to where you really want to be. You have to have a solid plan for your life that's anchored in the vertical, where you align your life with God's plan and his ways for your life. So what I want to do as we get ready, as we finish off this series in Peter's, I want to kind of unpack the, this these last closing words that Peter gives to these recipients. He really breaks it down into, I think, five things. And he gives them a vertical plan for life. And he just redefines success in the midst of this really tough culture that they're living in. And he says, you know what? I just don't want you to just survive this. God wants you to thrive in this. And so the very first thing he says is this. He says, you need to submit to the authority in your life. Now, Peter's very first words of advice are a tough one. Submit yourselves to people, here's what he says, who are wiser than you. And in this case, Peter's talking about spiritual leaders. He says in verse 5, likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Now, if you've been here week after week, you've you've just realized I've skipped over four verses. And if you're a C personality, you're about ready to pull your hair out. You're like, you can't do that. You can't skip over four verses. Well, I can, and I just did, and I'm going to, okay? I just want you to know that. Um, that Those four verses, the first four verses of of chapter 5, are written specifically to pastors and elders, and I would encourage you to read that because I think it's, it's very interesting and you, you need to read that. Um, but we're going to jump into verse four here, verse five. And Peter uses this word here. He uses the word subject. And what it means is it means to line up under or submit to. He uses it in the present tense, which means that our submission should be an ongoing way of life. It should be our lifestyle. And I think it's interesting that he specifically addresses younger people here. When I think back to my younger years, especially in my 20s, there is no doubt in my mind that I would have avoided some heartache and some relational things had I listened to the counsel of some older, wiser people who just truly loved me and were trying to speak truth into my life. But back in the day there, I was stubborn and I was headstrong and I I felt like I had it all figured out. I was full of youthful pride. 
And so as a result, I have some very interesting relational stories to share with people called my testimony. I don't want to have that, but that's the result of not, you know, people going, hey, you shouldn't do that. And I'm going, yes, I should. And they still to this day going, remember when I told you you shouldn't do that? You wouldn't have, shut up. So regardless, but I think regardless of how old you are, the point is this. We need to have not, we not, not only need to have wise counselors in our lives, but we need to listen to the counselors of the elder, especially the elders of faith in our lives. And we need to be open to their correction. We need to watch how they live. We need to follow their example, and we need to respect their decisions, and I think honor their wisdoms. wisdom. One, one of the things that I love about Westridge Church uh, over the last 17 years is, is, has been our elder team. Um, it was a slow kind of a evolution of how we got to where we do as far as church governance. But those are our elders. We just were, went away for a, uh, a few days a few weeks ago in Chicago. And uh, two of our guys aren't up there, Andy Joyner and Caston Williams. But um, I love these men. The, I'm actually one of 13 of the elders. My role on this team is senior pastor of Westridge Church. But these are the guys that, that, that I answer to, and, and they range anywhere from somewhere in their 30s to 65. The guy on the very far right there is Dave Carmichael. He's probably, I think, maybe the oldest guy on the team. Uh, he's our lead elder, and don't be fooled. He's a Marine. He could kill you in 10 seconds in 50 different ways. Um, three of these guys that are up there, I actually meet with uh, every single month, and uh, I, I answer to them. And these are guys that bring godly wisdom to our church. I call it the D's. They're, they oversee discernment, overall direction. They, they don't make the day-to-day decisions of the church, but they help us with overall direction decisions. And they, they're in charge of like church discipline. They oversee how we spend dollars here at the church. And I love these guys because I think it helps us. To, we, we call them the guard rails, not the guard dogs. And some of you have been in churches where there's guard dogs, not these guys. But let me tell you, I submit to authority in my life. I have, I, have, I have some older pastors in my life that I meet with from time to time. And I, and I listen to them just for godly, godly counselors. And even though I'm one of just the elders, I answer to the elders of our church. And, 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 and I love these guys right here. Because you know why? I need godly people in my life. You need godly people in your life. I need godly men in my life. I need, I need guidance. I need their wisdom. I need them to hold up my arms when I get tired. We all need that. And let me tell you, the, the number one spiritual gift when we're looking for elders here at Westridge Church, the number one spiritual gift we're looking for is not leadership, it's not faith. It's actually wisdom and discernment. And every one of you in this room, you need, you need people in your life that love you enough to speak truth into your life. People that, that can see things in your life that you can't see. They know you and they want nothing but the very best for you. And you need to be humble enough to listen to them. Because I think accountability in the Christian life is absolutely crucial. It doesn't matter how old you are. The purpose of accountability is not to punish you. It is actually, it's, it's actually to have people come alongside of you to encourage you, to guide, give you guidance, to help bring wi- wisdom into your life. And maybe even at times to bring a little course correction into your life. I mean... I look at my life, at, you know, when I break it down, my marriage, my kids, uh, my, the ministry that God has given me, and I will tell you, all of it has been shaped by the godly wisdom of those who God has brought into my life who are further along in the faith than I am. 
And, I, and I've learned to love that, embrace that, and embrace that as I've gotten older. Proverbs 8.35 says, For whoever finds me, and me means wisdom here, whoever finds wisdom finds life and obtains favor from the Lord. But he who fails to find me, finds wisdom, injures himself. All who hate wisdom love death. But here's the thing about submission, especially a submission to authority. Um, it can't happen without the next attitude, the next thing that, that Peter says here. Because the two go hand in hand. You cannot submit without choosing an attitude of humility. You've got to choose an attitude of humility. Look at verse 5. Clothe yourself, all of you, with humility towards one another, for God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. Now, the words clothe yourself come from this idea of taking a towel or an apron and tying it around your waist. And as Peter was writing here, I can't help but to think that he was thinking about the moment in the upper room when Jesus had his last meal with the disciples and Peter was sitting there and Jesus he stands up and he takes a towel and he wraps it around his waist and he picks up a, a, a water basin and he begins to wash the disciples' dirty feet. The word humility describes an attitude of someone who is willing to do the lowliest of tasks. Now, back in the day when this was written, and maybe even more so then than today, humility would have been, it would have been seen as a characteristic of weakness, of actually cowardice. This would have been a word that would have been associated with slavery. But, when Pete, what, but what Peter says next, I think really takes it and just packs a punch to it. He says this, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Now I want to tell you something. If there is one phrase in the Bible that gives me a sense of healthy fear towards God, it's that verse right there. It's that phrase right there. Peter says, when you are prideful, God's attitude towards you is one of opposition. Pride actually pits you against God. Now imagine that you're in a place where you are just desperate for God's wisdom. You're desperate for God's direction. You're, you're desperate for God's relief or, or his provision or his bless, blessing. And your pride is actually causing God to withhold that from you. On the other hand, when we choose to humble ourselves, Peter says God gives us grace. Now, I've talked a lot about grace over the last couple of years. We, we know about God's saving grace, which, which saves us from our sins, gives us an eternity in heaven. But what Peter's referring to here is God's sustaining grace. God's sustaining grace meets us at our point of need and equips us with courage and wisdom and endurance. You don't need to raise your hand, but think of how many of you right now, you could, you could truly use a dose of God's courage and wisdom and direction and guidance and confidence right now. I mean, you could just use a, you could use a shot of endurance right now. And what this says is God gives grace to the humble. He gives this to the humble. I love the way the prophet Isaiah says it in Isaiah 57, uh, verse 15. He says, the high and lofty one who lives in eternity, the holy one says this, I live in the high and holy place with those whose spirits are contrite and humble. I restore the crushed spirit of the humble and revive the courage of those with repentant hearts. How many of us would love to have God right now restore our broken spirit? Or, 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 or bring courage back to a fearful life. God says it happens when, when, when you come to him, when you come to me in an attitude of humility and repentance. And then look what Peter says next. He says, humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he may exalt you. Now, remember again who this letter is written to. 
It's written to people who are suffering. They're going through trials. They, they've been dispersed, I mean displaced from where they lived in Jerusalem to where they're living now. And, and they're like foreigners and they're going through a time of persecution. Now, whenever you see the phrase God's mighty hand in scripture, it means one of two things. It either means God's hand of discipline or it means God's hand of deliverance. And these are people that needed deliverance. And Peter says, humble yourselves, and at the right time, God will lift you up out of the trial that you're in, out of the suffering that you're going through. Now, there's a little two-word phrase in here that, I'll be honest with you, sometimes I struggle with. It's the words, right time. God will lift you out at the right time. And you want to know something? Sometimes God's right time is a little too slow for me. If you, have, if you follow me on Facebook and whatever, I, you, a couple weeks ago I put a picture of our elders um, anointing my youngest son, Zach, with oil. He's 16 years old. He's, he got injured um, back on March 10th in a, in a baseball game, plays for North Paulding High School, and he slid into third and, and um, he injured his, his lower back. He actually has two bulging discs in, low, in his lower back. And at the t- we didn't know what was going on at the time, and he's had some back injuries before, so we thought, okay, no big deal. It'll, you know, it'll pass. We'll just run him up to the chiropractor. It'll be fine. Um, but it's not gotten better. Almost six months into it. Nine doctors, MRIs, epidural shots. I mean, it, it's been an emotional journey. And there's times where I just honestly look and I go, Lord, I don't get this. I don't understand this. This is not happening quickly enough for me. And quite honestly, Amy and I, we could get angry through all of this. We could be demanding. Or we could just choose to continue just to humble ourselves in front of God and just say, Lord, we're under your your, your mighty hand. And we're just going to keep praying and we're going to keep waiting and we're going to keep watching, knowing that at the right time, you are going to heal him. We know that. And so we're just, we're, we're waiting and we're praying and we're taking steps as he leads us. But we're, tru- we're choosing to trust him even when we don't understand what's happening. And we don't. Look at verse six again. What, 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 what does it mean to humble yourselves under God's mighty right hand like if you're in a job situation where you're in a, you're in a bad situation and you, you don't understand what God's doing there? How many have ever heard of someone, or you, you know someone in your, in your past before, who you look and you go, that, that, they're, they're aggressive, they're self-promoting, they're, they're a fast-track person, they're climbing to the top of the ladder. I mean, they're all in. And, and, and I mean, the, the theme of their life and the key to their success is, I'm going to be humble. No, no, you probably have never met somebody like that. And yet God says, I give grace to the humble. He says, when you live with an attitude of humility, at the right time, in my time, I will exalt you. I will pull you up out of what you're going through. I mean, the bottom line is, here's the deal. We, we live in a world of self-promotion. And, and I, I don't care what our culture says. What we need to do is we've got to get to the place in our lives where when we we're redefining success, where we, say, where we just go, I'm going to let God do the promoting in my life. I'm going to let God do the exalting. So while you're waiting, and if you are in a time where you're waiting... What do you do? You sit patiently and you sit quietly under his mighty hand. And if God chooses to use you in a mighty way or promote you, you will know that it was him doing that. If, you, if, if, God, if, if God chooses to give you wealth or fame or whatever it is that, that, that he may choose to do, 
and you know it's him, you won't be able to help but give him glory. God, see, God redefines success. And so in the midst of that, the attitude that we need to have is an attitude of submission, humility. And then, he, then Peter goes on to say, we need to learn to give our anxiety to God. In verse seven, 6, he says, humble yourselves. And then verse 7, he says, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Now, the word, the word, the word cast here literally means to throw upon. We trust God enough to throw ourselves completely on his mercy and care. Now listen, there's nothing passive about this. There's nothing partial about this. This is, this is very deliberate. It's very decisive. It is all in where we take all of our burdens and we throw them. We throw our worries. We throw our anxiety totally on him. You, you, you might be in a moment of anxiety or having a moment of, a moment of anxiety right now about a relationship. Throw it on God. You might, you, you, you might have anxiety about a job situation right now. Throw it on God. You might have anxiety about your future. Throw it on God. You may have anxiety about your children right now. Throw it on God. You may have anxiety about your health right now. Throw it on God. Why? Because he tells us to. He said, just don't, don't, don't like pass it over. He said, throw it on me. Why? Because he cares deeply about us. He cares deeply about you. And who better to carry your worry or to carry your anxiety than the only one who actually knows your future? I love this verse. King David writes in Psalm 55, 22. He says, cast your cares on the Lord and he will sustain you. He will never let the righteous be shaken. And some of you right now, you feel a little bit shaken right now. So what do you do? You throw your cares on God and he will not only carry your load, but he will strengthen you while he's doing it. I mean, what an amazing promise. Some of you in this room, maybe you've been blessed with financial success or you've been blessed with a lot of success in your career. And with success comes responsibility and oftentimes with great responsibility comes anxiety, comes worry. What do you do with that? You throw that anxiety on the same God that gave you success. And so we've got this attitude of submission, an attitude of humility, trust. Now, let's add another one to it. We need to be very aware of our enemy and we need to resist him. Look at verse eight. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Now, Peter says, be sober-minded. In other words, he says, have some self-control in your life. Don't go to extremes. Don't go off the rail here. Chill out, cool out, all right? Keep yourself and your thought life in check. Don't get lured into toxic emotions. And don't, and, and don't get lured into the intoxicating things of the world. And then he says, be watchful. Because we need to remember that we have a very real enemy that is out there prowling around like a lion, like a roaring lion looking to devour someone. And you need to realize, as a child of God... As a believer in Jesus Christ, you have an adversary. You have an enemy, and he despises you. He hates what you represent, everything about it. And he is relentless, and he is ruthless, and he will never stop coming after you. And Peter uses the word devil. I'm sure you have heard that word before. Maybe you've been called that before. He uses the word devil 
to describe our enemy. Devil comes from the word diablos, and it means slanderer or accuser. If you look in Revelations chapter 12, verse 10, it tells us that the devil, Satan, is constantly accusing us all the time in front of God. But listen to this. He's also accusing you to yourself. He's constantly building a case against you in your thought life. Have you ever thought something like this before? I'm a loser. I'm worthless. I'm a failure. I'm guilty. I'm shameful. I'm never going to amount to anything. My life has been nothing more than a waste. That's, that's Satan building a thought, that, a case against you. Here's how he rolls. Peter says, listen, he prowls around. In other words, he's, he comes by stealth. He operates in secret. He's, he's seeking someone to devour. And as a Christian, he can't have you. That's very important to remember. As a Christian, he can't have you. He can't possess you. But his goal is now to ruin your life. He wants to destroy your marriage. He, he wants to derail your future. He wants to steal your kids. He wants to catch you off guard and lure you into sin. And it's easy, even if you grew up in a church, it's easy sometimes for us to see the devil or Satan as some fictional character that man created to represent evil in the world. You know, with the, the red suit and the tail and the, the fork and the horns, you know. I mean, it, but he's very real and he's very cunning and he's extremely brutal and he will hit you when your guard is down. Men, he will hit you when you're traveling. Ladies, he's going to hit you when you're tired and worn out. Students, tr- listen, he's going to hit you when you're away from your Christian friends, when you separate yourself from Christian influence. So how do I respond to that? My goodness. Well, here's what P- Peter says. Be sober-minded. Stay under control. Be watchful. Respect the fact that he's legit. But also, I love this, resist him by being firm in your faith. What's, what's the best way to handle Satan? You stand your ground. In my own strength, not on your best day. You cannot handle him by yourself on your best day. You're not strong enough. You stand your ground by being solid in your faith. That means you know this book. You learn sound doctrine from the Bible. You know this book. You know the truth from the false. The Bible says that in the end days, there's going to be false prophets out there teaching all kinds of stuff. You need to know the true from, from the false. You need to know what this book says about God, and you need to know what it says about you. And when you find yourself under attack, you use God's very own word against Satan. Great example. Jesus is getting ready to start his earthly ministry. He goes into the wilderness for 40 days. He's fasting. Okay? He's not eating. So he's weak, and Satan comes along, and he tempts him. Guess what he tempts him with? Wealth, fame, power, and pleasure, the horizontal stuff that most people seek after and how we, most people define success. And what did Jesus do? With each temptation, temptation, he quoted Scripture, and he threw it right back, right back at Satan. And at each moment, Satan, he, he fled. See, since Satan is a liar and a deceiver, another way to stand up to him is just to, to live in obedience to God's word. When you are walking in God's strength and you're living in obedience to God's word and you're living out truth, what do you do? You crush Satan's offense against you, his case against you. He has very little to use against you. When you resist in the power and in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, the devil will ultimately retreat. 
Now listen, he won't stay away, but he'll back away as you resist him firm in your faith. So we're building a vertical plan. We're, we're building a vertical plan this morning. We're, building, we're redefining success. We have submission. We have humility. We have trust, okay, because we're learning. We're going to cast all of our cares upon the Lord because we trust and he cares for us. We have awareness of our enemy. We know that our plan is resistance. And then finally, we're right back to where we started the summer from, when we started with this whole thing in the early part of the summer. We're right back to hope. We're right back to the very beginning. We need to put all of our hope in God. One of my favorite places in the Bible is verses 10 and 11. It says, after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Listen, in this life, you will suffer. You will go through trials. You're like, I'm good right now. You will go through trials, okay? You will experience pain. There'll be moments where you're gonna be exhausted from resisting Satan. You are going to be persecuted, but we have hope. Hope in life. We have hope not only for this life, but we have hope for eternity. What's hope? Hope is, this is how we defined it. Hope is a strong, confident expectation in God's future faithfulness and his presence. Peter says, after you have suffered for a while, God in his grace, he will restore you, he will confirm you, he will establish you, and he will strengthen you. That's what I call tremendous hope in the midst of a battle. And we're all in a battle. And some of you are going through a season of suffering right now. I want you to know God's at work. He's not wasting a moment of your suffering. He's not wasting a moment of your trial. He may choose to deliver you from your trial right now, next week, next year. I mean, who knows? I, sometime in the future. But he's our hope. Our trust is in him. You might be thinking, okay, what about, what about these, Paul was talking earlier about the, the these refugees that we're supporting and what about these brothers and sisters in Christ who are being persecuted and even executed in places like Iraq and and Syria? What about their suffering? How, How does God establish them? Listen, at the moment they enter heaven, God in his grace will restore them and establish them and strengthen them and confirm them. I love how the message translates verse 10 and 11. It says, the suffering won't last forever. It won't be long before this generous God who has great plans for us in Christ, eternal and glorious plans they are, will have you put together and on your feet for good. He gets the last word. Yes, he does. I like that. So regardless of what you're going through in this life, You can put your hope in him. Regardless of what's going on, he's your success plan. Because of that, from a personal standpoint, I don't have to worry about wealth and fame and power and pleasure because that's not success in God's eyes. I mean, if you get some of that, guess what? Use it for God's glory, not your own. But God has a different plan for success. And it's not just a plan for us to you know, crawl around and survive. It's a plan for us to thrive in this world. It's a plan that really truly does bring true peace and satisfaction and contentment and fulfillment and true rewards. 
And it involves submitting ourselves to others, choosing an attitude of humility, learning to cast our anxieties on God, being aware of our enemy and resisting him, and putting our hope in God alone. That, that, see, the, those right there, that's the ingredients that bring the true success that, that we really want and, and true success in God's eyes. Let's bow our heads. Lord, we love you so much. I, I can't thank you enough for this. You didn't leave us just to flounder around as we go through our suffering and moan our trials and even maybe moments of persecution, Lord. You left us with a plan. And as so much of the world around us, Lord, seeks after the horizontal and yet continues to run up against the wall and run into dead ends, Father, may we, as followers of Jesus, continue not only to live our lives vertically, but may we May our lives represent true success, which involves lining our lives vertically with you. May may they see that in our lives. If you're here this morning and you have never put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ to be your Savior, I want to invite you into that relationship right now. God, with his arms wide open, invites you. You say, how do I do that? You may just want to pray with me right now. This man will say, Lord, at this very moment, I put every bit of my faith and my trust in you alone. I, I, can't, I can't do this anymore. This horizontal plan's not working. And Lord, so I'm gonna line myself up vertically. And I realize the only way that I can truly do that is through the cross. And I'm so grateful that Jesus came and his purpose for coming was to die to die for my sins so that things could be made right between me and you. And so I put all of my faith and all of my trust in that, in what Jesus has done alone for my sins. And I receive his free gift of salvation and I repent of my sins and I say yes to you, Jesus, at this very moment. Thank you. With head still bowed, if you just prayed that, I want you to take out your um, connection card that you were given as you came through the door. Fill it out, check the box that says, this morning I prayed to receive Christ as my savior. Take it to the help center in the, in the atrium. We'd love to help you take the next step on your journey. Lord, thank you for, for the book of 1 Peter. It has brought us tremendous hope this summer. And we love you for every word that's spoken in this book. We love it. And we're grateful, Lord, that you didn't call us just to survive in this world. You've called us to thrive. And you've given us the meaning and the definition of what true success should look like. And we thank you for that. In Jesus' name, we pray. Amen. Amen.